Father, even right now in the silence of our own hearts, we just want to ask you to speak to us through your word. We ask that you would reveal things to us that would draw us closer to you, that would give us a more loving relationship with Jesus, that would prepare us for the things that are coming on this world. Thank you so much for hearing the cries of our hearts this morning, that you would speak with power for your namesake and for your glory alone. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This past summer, went on some hikes in Colorado. I was there with my family, with my uh, brother and his family. My two nephews were with us. I've told a few stories about it. Well, one day we decided that we weren't going to climb any big mountains that day. We were just going to go out for an afternoon walk. Now, I thought, okay, this is fine. This is good for, for the boys just to have a rest day, and the rest of the family doesn't want to get up too early. So we'll start late in the day. We'll start around 10 or 11. We'll just go up, and, and there was this little hike we found in a book. So we started off, and we were just enjoying it. We found a, a mine about halfway up, and we were exploring the mine and looking at different parts of the mine. And then we were hiking on up, and we found some more old log cabins that the miners had stayed in, and we were going around looking at these, and then I saw people coming down from the ridge. There was a steep ridge up ahead, and we started looking up there. I said, hey, I think there's more mines up there. I said, okay, well, let's just keep going a little further. And as we're going, some of the people came down, and I began asking them, what's, what's up there? Is it worth going to see? They said, oh, yeah, it's amazing. There's this mine up there, that, and there's this huge cable that they used to put the mine cars on to take the stuff up and down from. I'm looking up there. Yeah, we were supposed to go on a short hike today, but that looks pretty short to me. Hey, guys, you see up there? And I started talking to my nephew. Here's the secret. If you want to get to go and do something with your family, get the little kids excited about it because then you'll go. So I began to tell my, my nephew, hey, up there on the mountainside, there's, there's a, a mine up there and there's supposed to be this big cable and I, I think it's pretty amazing. Let's go up there. And so the rest of the family pretty soon said, well, why don't you run ahead and see what it's like? So I, I ran a ways up, and I said, yeah, there's some cabins up here. You at least have to make it as far as the cabins. It was still a, a ways from the ridge. They got up to the cabins, and they began to eat lunch. And then pretty soon my nephew's like, hey, so are we going to go up to that mine up there? I said, yeah, yeah, you want to go? I said, yeah, come on. And pretty soon we got about half my family was willing to keep on hiking a little bit further that day. We were hiking up pretty soon. One of my nephews is a little bit smaller, and he said, Could you carry me? I'm getting exhausted. So I carried him anything possible. We just had to see what this mine was like. We just had to see what the view was like from there. We had to see that huge cable that went down that they put the the cars on. And finally we got up there, and it was not very exciting at all. It was exhausting to get there, but we got there, and it was closed off. There wasn't much to see inside of the cave, but I argue with my parents that the view was amazing from there, far better than anywhere else. It was totally worth the hike. What are you, worth, what are you willing to do to get someplace? What are you willing to go through, and what depends and what causes you to be willing to do that? The story that we're looking at today is an incredible story. It's a story about some people who were go, able to go to extraordinary lengths, who were willing to do something extraordinary to find out a special treasure. 
Matthew chapter 2, our scripture reading for this morning. We start Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. We talked uh, two weeks ago about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. We talked about how Jesus was born in Bethlehem out of the midst of what seemed like a difficult situation, what seemed like everything was going wrong. They were being taxed. They had to go and be registered in Bethlehem. And here Mary is. She doesn't even get a good place to stay. Out of the midst of all these difficulties, the Savior was born, and prophecies were being fulfilled. So now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, all of that had taken place in Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It doesn't describe much about these wise men. We have this picture that there were three wise men. Tradition even tries to give us names for these wise men. But we don't know how many wise men there were. There could have been a bunch of wise men. But we do know that they were magi from the east. They were from the upper class. They had uh, some knowledge that other people didn't have. They were, they were those who studied the stars, as was talked about in our children's story. And we do have an idea as we'll see a little bit further on in the story, as to what part of the east they came from. It's likely that they came from along the Euphrates River, north of Babylon, and that it was about a 400-mile trip through the desert in order for them to get to Jerusalem. 400 miles. Now, how far is a city about 400 miles from here? Would that be about Sacramento, maybe? 400 miles. Now imagine going on a journey of 400 miles. It would take you back in the day, if you had something to ride on, maybe three to four weeks in order to get there. Three to four weeks if you were riding on a nice camel like was talked about in our children's story. These men are on a mission. They're coming to Jerusalem. So can you imagine in Jerusalem the stir that would be created when all of a sudden this group comes out of the desert with their camels, and they come riding into Jerusalem, looking for something. Verse 2 says, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Okay, so this 400-mile journey, this journey through the desert is even more extraordinary now because in order for them to do this journey, they would have been traveling when? In order to see a star. They've been traveling at night, so now we're not just saying three to four weeks, but if they were traveling well, it could have taken at least a month, maybe longer, because they're traveling during the night following this star that they see off in the distance. What kind of faith is this? Here you have men who haven't been brought up in the synagogues learning about the Old Testament scriptures. Here you have men who weren't trained about the true God from the time they were little. And here they're coming to Jerusalem. They're saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star and we've come to worship him. What kind of faith does it take to stake that much, to put that much effort into doing something for something that you know so little about? Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. If you know anything about King Herod, King Herod the Great got to his position in leading the kingdom by killing people around him. Anybody that was seen as a potential rival, anybody that was seen as 
threatening his being on the throne was killed by Herod. He was willing to stop at nothing. He was willing to do whatever it took in order to stop other people from having the throne. He wanted to do whatever it took to become king. And so he put many, many people to death in order to get on that throne. So you can see why King Herod is troubled. He hears about this king of the Jews, and the first thought is, what? King of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. But here's the thing. What does the verse say about who else is troubled? All Jerusalem with him. Why is Jerusalem troubled? This is the dream of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has wanted for a king. They've wanted to be delivered from the Romans. They've been looking for a Messiah for hundreds of years. They've been hoping. This is the hope of hopes that was given all the way back in the the Garden of Eden that there would be a coming one who would crush Satan. And yet they're troubled. When they hear about the signs of the times, when they hear that things are happening, rather than being excited, rather than saying, What? The king of the Jews is born? This is exciting. We need to go and find him. We need to worship him too. They're troubled. They're bothered by what's going on in the world. I found I have the same tendency. As I look at the world and I see what's going on in the world, never mind that Jesus in Matthew 24 has told me that there's going to be rumors of war. There's going to be all these signs happening. And then he says, but do not be what? troubled. Don't be troubled by it because these things must take place before the end comes. They're just signs that that I'm coming back. Yes, we should grieve and we should mourn for those who lose their lives. But at the same time, we recognize that it's just giving us urgency that Jesus is coming soon. This is what I see from this group of Adventists, those who are looking for the coming of Jesus, those who are excited about the coming of Jesus. The, The Magi are coming to worship him. Meanwhile, you have those who should have been expecting Jesus, those who should have known the prophecies of Daniel chapter 9 better than anybody, that the time had come for Jesus to be born, those who should have been looking in Bethlehem, those who should have found Jesus first, are troubled by the news that maybe Jesus has been born. I don't want to miss what Jesus is doing in the world today. I don't want to be missing the signs that are taking place. I don't want to be troubled by these things. I want to be excited knowing that Jesus is coming back soon. This is exciting times to be living in. These magi came from uh, what is probably modern-day Syria or modern-day Iraq. We're not exactly sure, but they're along the Euphrates River. Today, this is a a part of the world that is full of trouble. It's full of all kinds of of problems. And today we have the the massive migration of Syrians. This is a part of the world where we look at them and we say, it's so sad that they don't know about Jesus. It's a part of the world where Islam is a dominant religion today. And yet, in this story... You have people coming from the east and they were the ones that recognized that Jesus had come. It's interesting. Recently read a letter from Adventist World Radio. It was written by Frank Ricks, who is the manager for the FM radio station in Kenya. And he tells a story about a pastor in northern Africa who was summoned by someone there. Now, this is a dominantly Muslim area. And he was summoned to come to a house to pray with somebody. So he he comes to the house, and he's traumatized as soon as he sees the house because it's the house of an imam, a Muslim leader. 
And as he sees this, he thinks, oh man, I'm being set up. This is, this is not going to work out well for me. But something inside him tells him that he's got to go ahead and knock at the door. So he, he knocks at the door. The door opens, and sure enough, there's an imam there. But inside are 30 other Muslims. He says, man, this, this is definitely a setup. I'm in trouble. But he goes inside, and as he sits down with his circle of, of Muslims there, the imam says to him, we'd like for you to baptize us in a secret place. He says, you'd like for me to baptize you? He's a Seventh-day Adventist minister, and he says, well, how do I know that, that you're prepared? How do I know that, that you know the Bible, that you know Jesus, that you know the truths about the times that we're living in? And the imam says, well, for the past few months, there's been an angel that's been coming to our house and has been instructing us on these things. And he began to ask questions. He began to ask questions about the Bible, about Jesus, about the second coming, about all these different things in the Bible. And sure enough, this entire group knew exactly what you and I believe about the Bible because God had been teaching them. We shouldn't underestimate what God is doing in the rest of the world. We may look and say it's too bad that they don't know. And God is calling us to share with them, but we don't want to underestimate what God is doing. And that's what we find in this story, that these wise men come from the east, they come to Jerusalem, and they're looking for what all of Jerusalem should have been looking for, what all of Jerusalem should have been expecting. And Jerusalem shouldn't have been surprised that these wise men came. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60 it's a prophecy that should have given them a hint that, that this kind of thing could have happened, that this might have taken place around the time that the Messiah was born. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Sounded all like a star rising in the east. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. It's amazing how Jesus revealed his glory in a lowly manger, born in a stable. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shouldn't have been surprised that the Gentiles were coming, that these wealthy magi were coming to worship baby Jesus. They shouldn't have been surprised because this is what was supposed to happen when the Messiah was born. Lift up your eyes all around, verse 4 continues, and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be nursed at their side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles will come to you. With the wise men bringing gifts? The multitudes of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shouldn't have been surprised. They should have expected that this was the very thing that had been prophesied would happen when the Messiah came. They should have expected that wise men would be coming. They should have been excited rather than troubled. And yet, I find that often when I see all that's going on in the world, I become troubled rather than excited, realizing that Jesus is coming soon. Before long, the gospel is going to go to the world. Everyone will choose Jesus who is going to choose Jesus, and it will be time to go home. Friends, we're living in extraordinary times, just like the people of Jerusalem. Let's not be troubled. 
But let's trust in Jesus. Let's have an urgency to find Jesus. Let's have an urgency like these wise men had to do whatever it took to find Jesus because we're promised that if we seek him, we'll find him when we search for him with all our heart. That's what happens in this story. Back in Matthew chapter 2, Herod is troubled. All of Jerusalem is troubled in verse 3 and then verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod wants to find out what's going on. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring him back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Highly doubtful understanding Herod's character. Verse 9. When they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When the Magi saw this star in the east, when they saw the sign, and how did they know that this was an exciting thing? How did they know that this represented that Jesus was coming? How did they, repren- did they know that this was something to be excited about? Go back with me to Numbers chapter 23, 24. Numbers chapter 24 The children of Israel are in the wilderness, and in Numbers chapter 24, we find the story of Balaam. Do you remember that story? Balak has heard about the Israelites. He's heard about this massive multitude that came out of Egypt and what they'd done to Egypt. He'd seen some other battles where they had won and they'd done incredible things, and he was scared to death. And so he called for this prophet, Balaam. In fact, if you go back to Uh, chapter 22, it tells us that Balak was actually from the same place as these wise men were from. Then the children of Israel, this is uh, verse 1, moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were Many, and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So he's scared to death by it. And then in verse 5, it says, Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, that's the Euphrates River, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt so that they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once and curse this people for me. So in the story of Balaam, he begs for this man from the east, this man who was from all the way over at the Euphrates River, to come over and to curse these people. He somehow had heard about Balaam and knew that he had this special power. And he said, would you come over and would you curse the Israelites? So each time that Balaam goes to curse the Israelites, he had warned Balak saying that I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. And each time blessings came out of his mouth. And then in chapter 24... And verse 15, he takes up his 
fourth prophecy. He does this four different times, each time hoping that there will be a different result, that maybe this time he will actually curse the Israelites. Well, the fourth time, so he took up his oracle in verse 15 and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Now we don't know how this prophecy got carried on. But we do know that Balaam was from the, near the Euphrates River. And we do know that Balaam later turned against God. And so he goes back to his territory there in the east. And, and this prophecy likely was carried on through oral tradition. Maybe it was written down. We also know that the Jews had been scattered throughout that area. And so that there was probably copies of the Old Testament Scripture And these wise men, as they are there, they haven't had the privilege of growing up in a synagogue and learning the Old Testament from the time they're little. And yet, as they read this prophecy of Balaam, and they read about this star that is to arise, their imagination is captured. And they see that God is going to send them a deliverer. And so they search the Old Testament scriptures and they realize that the time is near. They, they probably looked at the prophecies of Daniel chapter 9 and realized that the time had come. And as they're looking up into the stars, what does it say in Psalm 19? Behold the heavens. As they're looking up into the stars, God gives them this beautiful sign that was promised way back in Numbers chapter 25. And a star arises. No wonder that in Matthew chapter 2, they rejoice with exceedingly great joy when they see this sign. Because they were just in Jerusalem, and they, they expected when they came to Jerusalem that you would have the entire city celebrating this new king who had been born. They expected when they got there that, that everybody else would be excited about this baby that had been born. But instead, everybody's troubled by why did these men come from the east, and why are they why are they saying that there's a king born of the Jews? So you can imagine how that must have discouraged their hearts. You can imagine it as they left Jerusalem and they expected that probably everybody would want to go with them to find this baby in Bethlehem. They're leaving alone. Nobody else seems to care. Nobody else seems to really believe that the prophecies are being fulfilled. Nobody really believes that Jesus is coming soon. People are doubting the promises of prophecy. But as they head out, as they're headed to Bethlehem, they see that star again and they rejoice with exceedingly great joy. The angels in Luke, when they had appeared to the shepherds, they said, we bring you tidings of great joy. But this is even greater than that. They say, we're rejoicing with exceedingly great joy, extraordinary joy when they see the signs of Jesus. Friends, that's the way I want to be. I'm an Adventist, but I want to be an Adventist like the Magi, looking expectantly because Jesus is coming soon. Soon all of this world's troubles, all the things that we see going on in this world, they're going to be put to rest, and the King is coming back in all his glory. What amazing times for us to live in. So verse 11 continues, after they see the star, and when they had come into the house, 
This is back in Matthew chapter 2. They saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Can you imagine? Here are these men who have come from a distance. They've come 400 miles. They're Gentiles. The rest of the Jews saw them as unclean. Can you imagine what's going through Mary and Joseph's mind? The shepherds had come to see Jesus, but they hadn't responded like this. They had gone and shared with everybody else, but the first people to worship Jesus are some Gentiles from a foreign land. The first people to give rich gifts to Jesus are Gentiles from a foreign land. People who were looking for the signs of the times. No wonder Jesus, later on in his ministry, looked around at the Jews and said, you can discern the signs of the weather. You know that when the sky is red at night, that it means certain things, and, and yet you don't discern the signs of the times. May that not be true of you and I. May we be recognizing the rapid fulfilling of the signs of Matthew 24 and of Revelation that are predicting that Jesus is coming soon and that there is no time like today to fall more deeply in love with Jesus than we have ever fallen before. May you and I be like the magi that we fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him and that we bring our gifts to him. In the Great Controversy, page 315, it says, Oh, what a lesson is this wonderful story of Bethlehem. How it rebukes our unbelief, our pride, and self-sufficiency. How it warns us to beware lest by our criminal indifference we also fail to discern the signs of the times and therefore know not the day of our visitation. Friends, I don't want to miss it. We talked last time in Hebrews 9 about how it says he's coming a second time and it's not going to be a surprise for those who are looking for Jesus to come back. Are you looking with expectancy for your king to come back? Jesus is coming again. How should we react? How should we live in light of the fact that signs of the times are being fulfilled all around us in light of the fact that Jesus is coming soon? I think we can take note from the Magi. The first thing that the Magi did was they fell down and worshipped. They gave Jesus their entire hearts. There's nothing more important than that. When we see the signs of the times fulfilling, when we see what's going on in this world, the only way not to be troubled is to have a wholehearted relationship with Jesus, to fall head over heels in love with Jesus. That's the only thing that's going to see us through the end is to love Jesus with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with our whole mind, with all of our strength. This is what you see with the Magi. They didn't understand probably a lot of the things about the Bible that that maybe the Pharisees did. But they were willing to wholeheartedly worship this baby who was born in a stable. That takes humility. That took Probably being looked at by the rest of the world is foolish. Why would you go to this baby and just fall down and worship a baby? And yet they recognized divinity clothed in humanity. But that's not all that they do. That wholehearted worship led them to do something else. In coming to Jesus and in devoting themselves wholeheartedly to Jesus, they brought of their treasures. They gave 
of their goods to Jesus. Because they saw here our Mary and Joseph, and they're this poor family. They're, when they went to the temple, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, when they had gone to the temple, they brought the sacrifice that was to be brought by the poorest of poor families. They were the ones who, who couldn't afford to bring a full sacrifice. If it wasn't for what the Magi did for Jesus, what would have happened to Mary and Joseph? I mean, you look at what happens in the next few verses. Verse 12 of Matthew 2. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country another way. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and the mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then in the coming verses, we find that Herod, in his jealousy and his outrage, recognizing that he's been deceived by these magi or that he's not been told by the magi what has happened, sends and he kills all of the babies who are two years of age or younger. What would have happened to Jesus if he hadn't have been provided for? I'm sure God could have provided for him in another way, but what a privilege that the magi had to provide these rich and extravagant gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's interesting, some people compare this to gold is a a gift that's worthy of a king. Frankincense is, is a gift that was specifically used in the sanctuary services. And Jesus is our high priest. And myrrh was specifically used to embalm those who died. Our Savior who died for our sins. They brought these extravagant gifts. They gave of their treasures to Jesus. And because of that provision... Mary and Joseph were able to go to Egypt and they were able to live in a foreign land. They were able to provide for themselves. They couldn't have done that otherwise. Here he'd been away already from his business in Nazareth of being a carpenter. He didn't have the funds to do something like this. Without the Magi coming and giving the gift that they had given, Jesus couldn't have survived in Egypt. Praise God for those who were willing to worship Jesus with their whole heart and who are willing to give liberally. In Desire of Ages, page 65, it says, The Magi had been among the first to welcome the Redeemer. Their gift was the first that was laid at his feet. They were the first one to give a gift to Jesus. And through that gift, what privilege of ministry was theirs. What an incredible privilege they had to give to Jesus. And this Christmas, I wonder... In all the giving that takes place, in the giving of cards, the giving of gifts, in all that we do this Christmas, where is Jesus in the midst of it? Are we giving to Jesus? Are we giving him gifts that are as worthy of a king? It goes on to say, the offering from the heart that loves, God delights to honor, giving it highest efficiency and service for him. If we have given our hearts to Jesus, we also shall bring our gifts to him, our gold and silver, our most precious earthly possessions, our highest mental and spiritual endowments will be freely devoted to him who loved us and gave himself for us. 
this Christmas, God is calling us like the Magi to worship Jesus, to bring our hearts. The greatest gift you can bring to Jesus this Christmas is your whole heart. If you haven't done it before, do it today. Say, Jesus, take my heart. I give it to you today. I surrender to you as my King and my God and my soon-coming Savior. There's no better choice that you can make than that. But don't stop there. Worship doesn't stop there. We talked today in the offering appeal about how ministry has gone forward over the past year with an ambitious church budget. And I praise God for all the things that have taken place over this past year, for all the Bible studies that have started, for Vacation Bible School that has uh, enabled a lot of kids in our community to learn about Jesus. I praise God for what's taking place at our church school. And this past week, I praise God for you as a church family who voted that this coming year, we want to see God do even greater things. You see, a couple months ago, we had a, a process where each of you who work in different ministries presented budgets, and when that came to the finance committee, they were a little intimidated by it because it was this huge list of things, and it was a, a large budget. And as we looked at that, we we're thinking, how can we do this when we've already been struggling this past year? But I praise God for the finance committee as they prayed through it and as they invested and said, let's go for it. Let's try to get as many of these things done as possible because ministry is what this church exists for. So as we look at this budget for the coming year, it increases by about $20,000. And the money from the thrift store is is, has been a huge blessing to us this year, but a lot of that is dedicated to the school for the coming year. So we have a challenging budget in front of us for the coming year. But it means incredible things. Because if you look at that budget, and I'm talking about numbers here for a specific reason, because if you look at that budget, while it increases for $20,000, it increases nearly $30,000, about $26,000 for the specific purpose of outreach. So that means some other areas had to be trimmed in the process in order that we could say that as a church, what we are devoted to is reaching this community for Jesus. Because like the Magi, we see the signs of the times. We see what's going on and we recognize that now is the day of salvation. Today is the day for people to choose Jesus. We don't know how many years are left. We don't know how much time is left. But we do know that today is a day when we can offer people Jesus. And so in this coming year, my wife and I are going to be praying, how can we give more? How could we possibly give more to this most incredible work? Because worship doesn't stop with just my heart. But it continues with me giving my time. It continues with me going all out in service for Jesus. And it includes me giving of my own treasure, just like these wise men. And when you think about it, when it comes to the king, what isn't worth giving to him? When it comes to eternity, when it comes to investing in just one person's salvation, what shouldn't I be willing to give to my king? That's what Adventists have always been all about. It's interesting that if you read back about one of the first Adventists, Joseph Bates. Joseph Bates was a sailor from the time he was a young man. He was born in the, the 1700s. He was a sailor for about, I think it was 25 years, and then he retired in 1837. 
And after he retired from being a a naval ship captain, he began to invest in different things. He had a modest fortune that he retired on of about $11,000. Doesn't sound like much in today's dollars, but back then that was actually quite a bit of money. He had this fortune. And so he began to invest in different causes. But it was around 1844 that a man named William Miller came through town. And Joseph Bates heard the message of a soon coming Savior. And as he read his Bible, he recognized that it's true, Jesus is coming again soon. And he, as he saw this, he said, I've got to do something about this. And he began to sell off his stuff and to do everything possible that he could share this message with the world. And by the end of 1844, he'd given most of his money to the work and to investing in him being able to preach this work. And they were down to the very little funds, but he continued to share the message of the Adventist church. And as he began to share truths about Jesus, pretty soon a lady named Rachel Oaks brought to the attention of Seventh-day Adventists the truths about the Sabbath that we hold dear. And through a tract written by William Preble, Joseph Bates heard about the Sabbath. And when he heard about it, he said, this whole time I haven't recognized the importance of the Sabbath. I've got to get this message out to the world. But at this point, he didn't have much funds left. But he began to tell everybody possible. There's a story about one day he's walking across the bridge and he immediately stops somebody and tells them about the Sabbath. So many incredible, inspiring stories from his life. But pretty soon he realized, I can't go everywhere. I can't do everything. I need to write a book about the Sabbath, a track about the Sabbath. And so he begins to write this track about the Sabbath, not having the funds that he's going to be able to distribute this track. He prayed about the matter, I'm picking up the story, and he felt assurance that God wanted him to write this little book about the Sabbath. So he sat down at his desk with his Bible before him and began to write, even though he didn't have enough money to publish this book. He'd not gotten very far in his writing when his wife, coming in from the kitchen, opened up the door and said, Joseph, I haven't enough flour to finish the baking. How much flour do you lack? asked her husband. About four pounds, she said. Very well, said Joseph, and he got up and he took a six-quart milk pan from the kitchen shelf, went out to the grocery store, and bought a pan full of flour. He took it home and went back to his writing. In no time, Mrs. Bates came in again. Joseph, she said, where did this flour come from? Why, she said, he said, isn't there enough? You said you just wanted four pounds. Yes, she said, but where did you get it? I bought it said Joseph. You, Captain Bates, a man who has sailed vessels out of New Bedford to all parts of the world, have been out and bought four pounds of flour. Wife, said Joseph Bates, I spent for that flour the last money that I have on earth. Mrs. Bates threw her apron up to her eyes and began to cry. She had not known before that her husband had spent the last of his money in the cause Sobbing bitterly, she cried, what are we going to do? Joseph Bates arose and standing up to his full heights, he said impressively, I am going to write a book. I'm going to circulate it and spread this Sabbath truth before the world. Well, but Mrs. Bates still weeping, what are we going to live on? The Lord is going to open the way, answered her husband smilingly. Yes, the Lord is going to open the way, she returned. That's what you always say. And bursting into a fresh flood of tears, she left the room. 
Joseph Bates sat back down and began writing again on his Sabbath pamphlet. In about half an hour, it was impressed to his mind that there was a letter at the post office for him and he should go and get it. So he went out and down to the post office. Is there a letter for me, Mr. Drew, he asked. The postmaster looked. Yes, there is, Captain Bates, he said. Postage due on it is about five cents. Mr. Drew, said the postmaster, I am out of money. I haven't even the five cents to pay the postage. But will you let me see who the letter is from? Oh, that's all right, Captain Bates, said the postmaster. Take it along and pay some other time. He handed him the letter. No, said Mr. Bates, I will not take the letter from the post office until the postage is paid. For it was a principle of his not to go into debt. But he looked at the letter and said, I feel that there is money in this letter. And handing it back to the postmaster, he said, will you please open it for me? If there is money in it, you take the postage out. And if not, I will not read the letter. The postmaster opened it. And the first thing to meet his eye was a $10 bill. He made change, took out the postage, and gave the rest of the money with the letter over to Joseph Bates. It was from a man who said in the letter that the Lord had impressed his mind that Captain Bates needed money. Joseph Bates walked off down to town, brought a barrel of flour and some potatoes and sugar and other things, and had them delivered to his wife. He goes on to share about how when the, the, the groceries come to his wife, she says, no, they're not supposed to go here. Not, this is the wrong house. But he had forewarned the delivery man to, to, that she would say that and to just deliver it anyway. So he went on into town and he went and he began to pay to have with the rest of the $10 as much as he could towards publishing his book. And he gave the rest of the money towards publishing his book. And then he went back home and his wife said, look, there's all this potatoes and sugar and flour on our, our porch and the, the guy wouldn't take it back. He said, it's, it's for us. And Joseph Bates, all he could say was, well, I told you God would provide. And sure enough, God did provide. Though he didn't know where he would get the money to publish that book, God provided. He laid it on another person's heart and God gave the money so that the book could be given out and the message of the Sabbath truth could go out. God will provide for his work. He did it back for Jesus through Magi who came and brought gifts that gave Jesus the ability to survive in Egypt. And today God is going to provide for his work. In Revelation 18 it tells us that there's going to be a mighty angel that's going to come down from heaven and the whole earth is going to be filled with his glory and that there's a message that's going to go out. And that message is to go to people similarly to where the Magi were from. They were from the east. They were from the area of Babylon. That message is going to go out. Come out of Babylon, my people. These are the times we're living in. Times for us to give liberally to the cause of God. So today, from the Magi, from the story of men who sought from 400 miles away to go on a long journey, I want to challenge you this Christmas to seek Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And not only that, but to support liberally His cause. Because Jesus is coming soon. And you may not feel like you're able to give out of your wealth like the Magi did. That's okay. There's one gift in the Bible that Jesus commended more than any other gift. And that was the gift of a widow who gave two mites, a fraction of a penny, 
gave two mites into the treasury, and he said that while all the others are giving out of their abundance, she gave all that she had to live on. Just like Joseph Bates, who had nothing left to buy groceries with, but he was willing to share about Jesus, and he was willing to give to that cause no matter what. Jesus looked at that woman and said, she gave more than all the rest. No matter where you're at today, no matter where your heart's at, no matter where you are at financially, Jesus is calling us this Christmas to give him our whole hearts, to seek him with all of our heart, and to give liberally to his cause. Let's pray together. Precious Father in heaven, this Christmas, we want to worship Jesus like the Magi did. We don't want to let the opportunity pass by. Lord, we don't want to be like those in Jerusalem who missed the signs of the times. We want to recognize that times are urgent. That there's no time like today to worship you with our whole heart and to give liberally to your cause. Thank you, Jesus, for leading us in this. Lord, in this prayer, I just want to leave a time of silence for each of us in our own hearts to first of all, Surrender our whole heart to you. And second of all, to ask that you would show us how to give liberally to your cause. Thank you so much for hearing our prayers, for hearing our commitments. Jesus, we can't wait to see you come in in the clouds. May you use us like you used those wise men of old to hasten your coming. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.